Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Anna Funder. On her new book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. Originally trained as an international human rights lawyer, Anna Funder is the author of the international bestsellers Stasiland and All That I Am. In 2004, Stasiland won the Samuel Johnson Prize and along with All That I Am has been published in 26 countries. All That I Am won the Miles Franklin Award and was a finalist for the International Impact Dublin Award and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. It was also chosen as a BBC Book of the Week and Book at Bedtime. And today we're here to talk about Anna's latest book, which is Wife Dumb, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. Anna, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. It's my pleasure to be here. Tell us then, first of all, what was the inspiration for this book? Well, my husband and I moved from back home to Sydney from New York. And when we did that, he got a big job and I found myself with possibly equally big job that was, as I now think about it, a motherload of wifedom. I'd been doing an outsized amount of wifedom with our three children before that, but it was a sort of moment of peak overload. And I was in a shopping center doing like a mountain of shopping and dragging a poor depressed French exchange student around and getting my three kids ready for school at the beginning of the year and dealing with a thousand emails and ill relatives and all kinds of work involved in life and love and care. And instead of doing something sensible like turning to yoga or, you know, long distance running or therapy or something, I turned to Orwell because I have always been interested in how he can look at power and who it works on from an underdog position. And I think I thought if I read my way through his work, I might find how whatever the powers that be in, I suppose, patriarchy, though I didn't think about it as clearly as that at the time, how that is working on me. So I set off on this really long reading jag, really, as well as doing all the work that I was doing with the family and the relatives and the home and so on. And read my way through his collected essays and journalism, and then reread Animal Farm in 1984. And then I read six biographies of him, the major ones, all written by men. And after that, I wasn't cured. <laughs> so I kept reading and I found six letters written 
by his first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, to her best friend from their days at Oxford together reading English. And these letters date from really the beginning of the marriage, or six months after, to the end of the marriage in 1945. And they, her voice, Eileen's voice, was such a revelation to me. I could tell you why, actually, in the first letter, the first thing I read, what it was that so struck me. It takes her nearly six months to write to Orwell after they were married in 1936 in June. In the November, with his parents in Southwold, she and he have been living in a tiny village called Wallington outside of London in really primitive conditions. No electricity, just a fire for heat, one tap indoors, cold tap. And she kind of surfaces from a life of looking after animals in the garden and cooking three meals a day for George. And as it turns out, giving up her MA in psychology that she was undertaking at UCL so that she could do all of this work on the home front, as it were. And they, at the end of the year, they go to his parents' house. And that's when she finds she has time to write this first letter to her best friend. And she writes, Dear Nora, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write to you, but we have quarreled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. And I thought that was so funny and so hilarious and also so telling. I thought, I wonder what it is that they're arguing about as she gets used to her new job as a wife and why does she want to kill him even in jest? So I turned back to these rather wonderful and various biographies, the six of them, and I looked up what they had to say about these newlywed days at the cottage. The biographies really don't feature Eileen very much at all as a person in her own right. But I turned back to this newlywed moment and they say things like, conditions were idyllic for Orwell. He had never been happier before or after. And I think I just thought to myself, between the passive voice of conditions were idyllic and the woman, the active woman who is working to make those conditions, possibly there is room for a book. And I think subconsciously, I thought, possibly in writing that, I will sort out the conditions of wifedom also for myself and women that I know in our time. So tell us more about who Eileen O'Shaughnessy is before she meets Orwell. Or yeah, before, so I should say before she meets Blair, although, of course, she always refers to him as Orwell. She refers to, she talked about him as George. She called him George. So his pen name was George Orwell, Eric Blair's pen name. And she referred to him as George. In the wifedom has a nonfiction strand where I try to describe and analyze and work out the sly ways, really, in which Orwell wrote her out of his books and the narrative of his life and how the biographers follow suit and downplay her importance and indeed the importance of his many, many women who helped him, nurtured him, mentored him, were his patrons and relatives and so on. So the nonfiction part of this book, I refer to him as Orwell. And then I very fortunately got permission to use her real letters, these wonderful six letters and a few others in the book. And I quote those as they are, but I write them into scenes in which Eileen is sitting writing them to her best friend because I know 
from finding out where she was when she wrote them. I know what she's not telling her best friend. For instance, I know that Orwell's off with another woman and that he made sure that she knew about it and and so on. So I write these kind of fictional scenes, but using the real letters and very closely based on what was really going on. And in those scenes, she calls George, George, and I call him Orwell. Eileen O'Shaughnessy um, came from a family in South Shields, which was in the class system, slightly better off than Orwell's family, whom he famously described as lower upper middle class, meaning, I think, if I can parse the British class system correctly, upper middle class, but without the money to really be it. So she came from more comfortable circumstances. She was a brilliant student, head girl and ducks of her high school, and she got a scholarship to read English at St. Hugh's College at Oxford in the early 1920s. So she studied under Tolkien and other luminaries of the day. She was a very good writer, a very witty woman, a woman who could see, one friend said, through people as if their faces and manners were glass. What she saw was their feelings. So she's very politically acute and psychologically acute. So she read English, after which she graduated with a second instead of the first she'd very much hoped for, went to London, worked in a range of jobs as a so-called secretary, as a reader to Dame Cadbury of the chocolate-making family. At one of these jobs in an office in London, the boss, a woman, was a terrible bully and Eileen organised a walkout of the staff in triumph as a protest. So she had a power of leadership and action, political action, I suppose. And when she was 29, she met Orwell. She was at that time, as I say, studying for an MA in psychology. And she met him at a party in Hampstead because Orwell was living with another student in that course, a woman called Rosalind Obermeyer. So she and her friend Lydia, also from the psychology MA, go to this party and they see Orwell draped across the fireplace, looking in Lydia's description, moth-eaten, and to her, to Lydia, unattractive. But Orwell really fell in love with Eileen at first sight. Um, He proposed to her shortly after that party, and she took her quite a lot longer to come round. She said of the party, I was at my worst, quite drunk, very rowdy, behaving badly. But obviously that didn't put him off at all. When they got married, actually, her, his mother took her aside and said, this is what she says in the first letter to Nora, the mother took me aside and said, I'd be a brave girl if I knew what I was in for. And the sister, Avril, said, well, obviously she doesn't know what she's in for or she wouldn't be here. But Eileen thought to herself, what they don't understand is that I'm very much like Eric in temperament, which is an asset once one has accepted the fact. Can we talk a bit about Orwell's relationship with women in general? Because he has, there's a point in the book where she describes him as having had too much sex before they were married, which is a very sort of enigmatic phrase. We don't really get what she means by that. Um, He seems like, you know, he's had a lot of relationships, but he doesn't seem to have that much rapport with women let's say there's also the, the fact of his his sort of extreme homophobia even for the time and despite the fact that you know as a writer 
and someone who occupied something of a sort of, you know, bohemian demimond. No doubt there would have been, you know, a lot of his writers and friends who were, and obviously he was a public schoolboy. Obviously it was illegal at the time, but who would have been gay? So tell us something about Orwell's relationship with women in general. Yes, that's a very important question and a complex one that I really try to tease out in the book. So Eileen told a former girlfriend, um, an older woman uh, who was married and quite wealthy and who had helped Orwell a lot, given him money and given him a place to stay in London when he went down and out, as it were, in the Kips, where homosexuality was also prevalent. Mabel Fierce was her name. And Eileen said to Mabel, Mabel was also sleeping with Orwell, had been before the wedding. Mabel was the person who found Orwell, his first publisher, and his agent, Leonard Moore, who he stayed with for life. So she was a very important person to him. And Eileen said to Mabel, she thought he'd had too much sex before marriage shortly after the wedding. That is something that the biographers have difficulty with. It's hard to know what that means. They say opposing things. One of them says, perhaps he was jaded and unresponsive. Another says, perhaps he was too forceful. But Orwell's sexuality, as you imply, is a very tricky thing because he had a lot of sex with women and girls before he was married. So in the brothels of Burma, um, with a poor sixth form teacher who'd set up with half her class, apparently, in the brothels of Paris, with a so-called trollop who had a flat chest and an eaten bob and was, quote-unquote, in every way desirable, who'd he'd installed in his hotel room in Paris. He had, on the sort of more obvious side, a lot of girlfriends too, before he got married, who were a bit like Mabel, women who could help him, who were intellects, who were interlocutors, who were literary women, who he wanted to learn from or talk about literature with. And then there was his mother and his aunt. Obviously, these are not sexual relations, but enormously formative. His mother and aunt were both feminists and Fabians. His aunt Nellie was a suffragette who got arrested with the Pankhursts and ran a, a literary salon in London. Those things you don't learn from the biographies either, where you learn really only about his lineage through the male line of Blairs. His father was a rather dull man, a lowly civil servant with very few intellectual interests. So he relied on women at every turn, intellectually and practically, and had sex with any number of them. And then after he was married, he did what the biographers describe as pounce on women. So he had very many relationships with literary women, interesting women, most likely also prostitutes during his marriage, and Eileen's friends. And he liked to let her know about that so that she would be distressed, uh, furious, and isolated from those friends. So there's a lot of sex with women, but as you say, I think really his desire, perhaps hidden even from himself because he was such a, a virulent homophobe, was for men. He liked to be in all-male environments. He'd been in love with another boy at Eton, as I think was quite common at the time. He spent a year in London before he was married going about the place with a man who identified as homosexual, whose name was Edouard Roditi, who liked to have sex with men who identified as heterosexual and they went to vaudeville shows and cheap Chinese restaurants together and things, which is mentioned by only one biographer. William Emson, after Orwell died, said, you know, it remarked on this uh, homophobia of his, which was so extreme and said, you know, 
for those of us when we were younger, when we loved the workers, we did it practically. You know, there was this kind of upper class thing of going down and out into the East End or up north or wherever on effectively a kind of sex tour in the lower class. So I'm not sure whether he did that, but he enjoyed being undressed by his houseboy in Burma and taught him to tickle his feet when he woke up. When he got very furious at one of a flatmate, a male flatmate who came home drunk one time, it's widely known that he bashed this fellow with a shooting stick. But Mabel, his girlfriend, the older married woman I mentioned earlier, said of that, oh, trying to console this fellow, said, you know, I think that's disappointed homosexuality. He did things like, you know, strip search young teenage soldiers in the Spanish Civil War. And there's a lot of evidence that he, in a fairer, kinder, less homophobic world, would perhaps have been happier being intimate with men, but that wasn't possible for him. So his sexual relationships with women were perfunctory even though he needed them for help in all kinds of ways, intellectual and practical. And women who had sex with him said things like, he makes love Burma Sergeant Major style. He hops off, rolls over and says, ah, that's better. So his capacity for intimacy in that way with women was limited, I think. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anna Funder, and we're talking about her new book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. And 
Anna, we did spend quite a bit of time at the end of that first half talking about George Orwell himself, even if the conclusion we can come to is he seems like a, a real piece of shit in a lot of ways. But one of the things that we do know about him is that, you know, he went to went to Spain to fight for the Republicans, which is an incredibly brave thing to do. And one of my very favourite books is Homage to Catalonia. Not that many people know because he doesn't really mention it, is that Eileen went with him as well. So let's talk about their time in Spain for a while. And first of all, why did she go? Yes, Eileen went to Spain because I think she wanted the adventure. He left her at this tiny, decrepit cottage looking after animals alone. And she reinstalled the aunt Nelly to do that work on the home front and went off to Spain. She got a job in the headquarters of the International Labour Party, which was affiliated with the Spanish PUM, a left-wing party there. Orwell was fighting for that party off in the trenches of Aragon, bored out of his mind, trying to find a bullet to hit him, which he was eventually successful in. And he didn't really know what was going on because he was in these holes in the ground. She was at the epicentre of what was going on. She was living at the Hotel Continental and working at the, as I say, the headquarters. She was writing and typing the propaganda of the party for radio and print broadcast. She was dealing with the supply of what the men needed at the front and all of their mail to and from the front. She got her sister-in-law, Gwen O'Shaughnessy, who was a doctor in London, to drive a car from London to Barcelona during the war full of medical supplies. She lent the leader of the party quite a lot of money because he was broke, as was the rest of the party. And she was aware that there were Stalinist spies in the office. She didn't know exactly who they were. So she knew from working at the epicenter everything that was going on. And in fact, you can read Homage to Catalonia, a book I also adore, a couple of times as I did and not realise she was there. So the kinds of erasures of women that are common in patriarchy and in the narratives of patriarchy, like the biographies that I'm looking at, also evident in Homage to Catalonia. Orwell, when you scan the electronic text of that book, which I did right at the end of writing this part of Spain, I had to, I should say, go back to the biographies, go back to their sources, find what they'd left out and then find other sources they'd left up, like the account of Charles Orr, this American economist who she was working with, about that to kind of reconstruct the events in Spain from the point of view of this woman who had was at the centre of them but had been made invisible. And Charles Orr says of her, compared to all of the spies, chancers, mercenaries, operatives and grifters who were drifting through our office, Eileen stood out as a superior person which no biographer quotes at all, because then you would have to account for her war. But, you know, there's a, there's a scene in Homage, which is just on a page where Stalin starts to, um, he wants to liquidate these other left-wing parties in Spain and wreck the revolution, because he doesn't want there to be a left-wing regime in Europe he doesn't control. And all their friends are being arrested, murdered, put into prison, including women, non-combatants, wives, and so on. And when this battle breaks out on the street, which involves machine guns and grenades, Orwell makes a mistake, kind of innocent mistake, really, of running away from the hotel where she is, down to a Poom building where he hopes to find a weapon near the port. But he stays there all day and into the night. And that evening, he says he goes out to dinner with a friend, a male friend at his hotel. And then he comes back and rings and he rides, as you probably know from the book, 
He writes, I tried to make, because the telephones are back working, they were out. I tried to make contact with my wife, he writes. I didn't manage to reach her, but I managed to reach John McNair, who told me nobody had been hurt, everything was all right. But once you've done what I did, and I have to admit that I spent longer researching this time in Spain, trying to reconstruct her central role in it, than the Blairs or the Orwells actually spent in Spain. I'm so embarrassed about that. It was like untangling a cobweb, taking apart this text and trying to find her. But what has happened in that scene is that he has rung the hotel room, their hotel room, and she's not there. So he has rung her office. But he can't say he's rung her office because he can't say she has an office because he can't say his wife has a job. And he certainly can't say his wife has a job at the headquarters of the ILP. And that would be how he finds John McNair. And when Orwell writes, everything was all right, nobody had been hurt, nobody is Eileen. So these are the ways in which you can tell a story and leave out the woman at its centre. And that was what was so interesting to me. Well, there's another example of that that I want to talk about, because, I mean, you mentioned he went to the trenches and was bored and was, and he mentioned, you know, ironically, chasing a bullet. And he is eventually shot and he's shot in the throat. And it's, you know, it's quite an unpleasant thing to happen to somebody. And then there's like a, you know, a long section in the book where he talks about traveling in various different ambulances to multiple different hospitals and um, convalescence homes and things. All of this time, presumably, while you're reading the book, we think that his wife is in Barcelona. But actually, it turns out that she's there with him almost all of the time. And again, this is just not mentioned. Yes, it is extraordinary. She was there within 48 hours of the injury and was organising his transport and medical care and so on. He ends up in the sanitario Maurin near Barcelona. Yes, he spends two and a half thousand words describing being shunted about like a bag of bones on the back of trucks and so on, and abysmal nursing care and terrible food and being robbed in a hospital and so on. Two and a half thousand words, which she later typed and doesn't mention that she was there doing all of that. Moreover, in the end of their time in Spain, she risked her life to get them out of Spain. She suffered a raid in her room. Six Spanish policemen under Stalinist control came in and searched the room at dawn for two hours where she was alone in the bed. And she'd had the foresight to put their passports and checkbooks under the mattress. And she just stayed on that mattress like a, a hen on precious eggs and somehow managed to put those men at ease and they never turfed her out of bed. Orwell tells that story, but he tells that story and the moral for him or the outtake for him of that story is about the men and not about her. And he takes from that story nothing about her bravery, nothing about her psychological skills of keeping all of those men calm. His view is that it says something about the Spanish who, even under Stalinist control, are still decent men. So it is quite extraordinary, the sort of blinkered, almost willfully blinkered way of erasing her from the text. At the end of this time that I spent, long time that I spent in Spain, my husband would just open the door of my workroom and, you know, summer or winter and just say to me, are you still in Spain? And I'd say, yes, I'm still in Spain. But I got onto the electronic text of this because they are, all these works are out of copyright now, so you can pull them up on gutenberg.com. And I put in the search term, my wife, and my wife comes up 37 times in Homage to Catalonia. But I realized then not once is Eileen named. And if you don't name someone, 
they can't become a character. They can't have agency. They can't really visit you at the at the front. So she does visit him at the front, actually, before his injury. That's not mentioned at all. They spend three days and come under fire. No mention of that. She actually said of that visit, she'd never enjoyed anything more, which I think rather puts domestic work at the cottage into perspective. But yes, she doesn't save his life. She doesn't save his manuscript. She doesn't have a job in propaganda, supply and communications, nothing. When you read Homage, you I don't know if you're like me, I loved it. I thought it was self-deprecating, funny, acute and truthful. But it is not really those things. To finish this off, can we talk about what obviously they come back from Spain, they do survive Spain, otherwise we wouldn't have many of the books. And they are together through the uh, through the Second World War, working in various ways until they both end up dying very young. What influence did she have on his later work? Yes, so she supported them both by working at the Ministry of Censorship in the Department of Information during the war for a couple of years. That ministry is obviously censoring the news and was in Senate House, and he took Senate House as the model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984, where Winston sits up there deleting or censoring the news. So there's that kind of influence. And then there's a much more direct influence that she had on Animal Farm. So he, in 1944, thought that he would write an essay critical of Stalin. So Hitler is bombing London. The Blitz has been terrible. And Eileen, who has much more astute political instincts and has been working in censorship, says that's not a good idea to write an essay critical of Stalin because no one will publish it. He is helping us win this war now against Hitler. And she, who had studied, as I say, under Tolkien and who was a terrific writer, whimsical, understood fable structure and story structure, then worked with him on Animal Farm. When they were working on that, she had another job at the Ministry of Food. One of her colleagues was the aptly named Lettuce Cooper, who is a novelist, and Lettuce has left a very clear account of the working process of Animal Farm. So every day Eileen would come into work and talk about the latest instalment of Animal Farm. Then she'd work all day, shop for whatever she was going to cook for them and their bombed out friends and whoever else in the evening. And then every evening they got into bed together to stay warm because they couldn't afford to heat the flat and worked on Animal Farm together. Animal Farm is a complete outlier in all of Orwell's works, which the other major books have an everyman, underdog, Orwell stand-in figure, whether it's John Florey or Winston uh, or Gordon Comstock. But Animal Farm has an ensemble cast of characters, including female characters who are all deftly drawn. And when you read Eileen's letters in my book, you can see exactly the kind of whimsy, humour and fantasy that imbues Animal Farm is hers. So I think that they really worked on that very closely together. His publisher, Fred Warburg, who knew Eileen well and published Animal Farm, was a very nice man, but he too was blind to her influence. And I think it's out of fear of taking something away from a man that he needed help or got help. And Fred Warburg said after he published Animal Farm, I just can't understand it. The writer of rather grey novels has suddenly taken wings and become a poet. So I've been talking to Anna Funder. We've been talking about her latest book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Such a pleasure. Thank you for the terrific questions. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. 
Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.